Hello there, everyone. Welcome back to Driving Theology. It's a very rainy Wednesday evening on my way back from work. Uh, and I thought today I would talk about uh, the gathering, uh, the nature of uh, the gathering uh, in the first century from as far as we can tell, how that, how that uh, looks compared to modern day gatherings, uh, especially um, the per pervasive models, and what that means. You know, what, what might that mean to us uh, if, if we do happen to discover that there are differences, um, fairly major differences, between the gathering of the New Testament, the gathering of the first century versus the gatherings of today, uh, what does that mean and what should we gather from that? No pun intended. Uh, <laughs> so, all right, let's talk about what the gathering might have looked like in the first century. Uh, first of all, we do know that they did gather, and we're pretty sure that they gathered either constantly or regularly, depending on how you look at it. Or, of course, constant is regular. Regular is not necessarily constant. Uh, but if you look at Acts, especially in the first couple chapters, you'll see that the believers, at least in Jerusalem, were together a lot. Uh, we, we see the word, I think, every day and daily. Uh, see them sharing life together. Now, interestingly enough, in Acts, at least in the first couple chapters, I don't believe that there is a discrepancy between just being together and gathering. It seems to all be bound up into one. Now, I don't know if at this time they had a regular gathering or if that's something that evolved over time, uh, but we do see it in the epistles, right? We, we will see uh, later in the epistles that, they, that the gathering, at least in some places, happened on the first day of the week, that that was considered a somewhat holy day by the first century church because that's the day that Jesus resurrected from the dead. Uh, so, we, we know in Acts, at least, again in Jerusalem, that they, they were together daily and that they were, they seemed to be living in a communal, communal style habitat. Uh, now, I don't know what that meant exactly because a lot of the people sold their property and then they shared the proceeds and gave to anybody who had need. We know that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Uh, and the Lord's Supper into prayer, I believe it said. Um, so, the gathering at first seems like it was probably uh, almost living together. That the early church in Jerusalem spent a lot of time together. And I have a feeling that they actually dwelt together very often. Now this is, this would have been simple for them because if the disciples were as Jesus was, which is basically homeless, uh, and especially when he was outside of, depending on 
which you know traditions you believe, whether he was outside of Nazareth or Capernaum, where is which is a possible place where he had, where he had a dwelling. He actually may have had a house at some point, uh, which is the house that some people say is uh, featured in the paralytic being let down through the roof, that that could have been Jesus's house in Capernaum. Now, Capernaum would have been a good place for him to live as a builder because it was a, a happening area. There was a lot of building going on by the Romans during uh, Jesus's years, and as a tekton, uh, as a builder, uh, we often call him a carpenter, but actually he probably worked with wood and stone and, and was in general a builder. Uh, that would have been a, a good location for him to be employed. Uh, of course, before he was about 30, when he started his ministry, what seems to be full-time. So, if the disciples were as Jesus, which was basically homeless and at the mercy of people who were helping him, and we know that uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were of a family in Bethany who often housed him. He stayed with them very often. Uh, and we can assume there were more places that he was always welcome. But we know he was always welcome in Bethany. So if they continued in this way, and if by this time they were more or less homeless, then yeah, the, the disciples at least would have been meeting together. And the disciples we know would have been the core group of Christians that would have been meeting. They would have been the leadership of the somewhat, you know, somewhere around 500 believers that there were in Jerusalem at the time. Uh, so, it would have been simple for them to live together. They probably were already doing it on a very regular basis. So that, you know, at what point does living together, living in communal, communal living, uh, become the gathering, the time, the appointed time of worship. Um, that's hard to say. You know, today we could probably point to many reasons why we need an appointed time because of the, the work schedules that we have and the distances uh, between members. Uh, you know, one from where one member lives to another are great. And so just schedule-wise, it would be very difficult for us to meet every day. It would be, uh, it would, it would require a life uh, style change, which I'm glad to point out. There are some people, especially in the new monastic movements uh, that are happening today, that are that are trying this out. Uh, there are Christians who are living together and who are uh, with each other and uh, in and. In, in deeply in each other's lives uh, day in and day out. And I think uh, all Christians would love to be in that situation. But for whatever reason, we live in this world that we do and families generally have their own home. And, and although in some cultures, outsiders are welcome in, uh, to get someone to the point where they're welcome to live with you is, is, a, is a pretty big step, I would say, these days. Um, uh, so, Again, back to the question, at what point did being together every day become a gathering? Well, short answer is we don't know. But let's suppose it happened after uh, 
the stoning of Stephen and the scattering of the, the disciples. Um, now, when the disciples scattered, they would have gone into the Roman Empire, out of Jerusalem, into some of the closer states, uh, closer cities in Judea, and some of the uh, closer countries, uh, into Macedon, places like Macedonia, uh, Greece, of course, uh, and, and the Near East. And they would have been in the Near East. And a lot of these cities show up, sure enough, later. We have cities like Corinth, and Ephesus, and Philippi, um, Thessalonica, Colossae uh, or Colossae, uh, which are all also uh, titles to letters by Paul. He he uh, made disciples in those cities. Those those disciples became churches, and he uh, shepherded them at least for a while, and then uh, remained and influenced in their life through letters. Um, so when the disciples were scattered, we know that there were probably, you know, this is after Pentecost, there were thousands of believers in Jerusalem. Now, we don't know how many were scattered. We know that some stayed, obviously, in Jerusalem. Some of the uh, chief disciples stayed, um, but they were scattered, right? They were, they were scattered into the uh, Roman Empire. Now, you know, if you come into a city and you are a Jew out in the Roman Empire, the first place that you would look for, and this is what we find uh, Paul talking about, is the local synagogue. Synagogues were uh, institutions that came up, I believe, in the time of exile, when uh, several hundred years before uh, this time, synagogues were places where Jews could go and and at least be somewhat <laughs> Jewish uh, and worship in the synagogues and learn and teach. And there was there's so many things they couldn't do because they were not in the temple. But the synagogue was a building, and in it it had a, a mikvah, also called a mikveh, which was a baptistry. Now this baptistry was engineered to collect rainwater so that the Jews could perform their ritual cleansings even though they were outside of their uh, their home homeland waters uh, such as uh, the Jordan River uh, and I suppose other rivers in the area as well as uh, the ocean so ritual cleansing had to be done by at least by Jewish law I don't know this that this is in the Torah I'd have to check this but had to be done in natural waters it could not be any kind of stagnant water, uh, but it had to be some kind of a flow, naturally flowing water, and I believe the ocean uh, and rivers uh, all met this criteria. But, you know, maybe they were in the desert, I'm not sure why, but they decided to create mikvahs, or baptistries, so that uh, rainwater would be collected in them, and this would be natural water, and somehow they justified themselves in using this water to to ritually cleanse themselves, which they had to do periodically in order to uh, be close to people. They, they, they were not allowed to be with other people uh, if they were ritually unclean. For example, if they had touched a dead body, 
or, or there are se several other things that would make them unclean. Uh, unclean, for example, touching a dead animal. Sometimes even being in close proximity with something unclean. Uh, and then being in the Gentile world, they would have felt unclean constantly. But these synagogues were places where the Jews would get together, they would read the Torah, uh, and probably um, scriptures from the Talmud and their other holy books, and they would, in some manner at least, remain religiously Jewish through these places. So a Jew traveling in the world, that would be the, the place that they would want to find. If they came into a city for the first time, they would want to find the local synagogue, because that would attach them to people who uh, were culturally similar to them. They, they would immediately be accepted and and uh, welcomed in those places. Now Christians were Jews, and we know that many of the Christians still obeyed the Jewish laws. So they would have, when they went out into the world, gone into these synagogues without reservation. Uh, and then, most likely, uh, they would have tried to um, introduce these people to Jesus. Now synagogues, as I understand it, and my understanding is very slim, synagogues were very egalitarian places in that Jewish men were allowed to speak and to discuss. And it was, it was a place where uh, you were allowed to speak, obviously, and, and quite freely. I would say even more freely than our modern-day churches. You know, churches today, uh, there's not a lot of dialogue that happens in our gathering. It's mostly a few people plan a worship service, perform the worship service, and the large majority of people sit, listen, and they uh, participate in singing and in uh, apparently uh, participating in the prayers. But other than that, it's, it's a very passive, uh, spectator-like participation uh, in most of today's uh, modern-day worship services or masses or uh, whatever you'd like to call uh, these liturgical type uh, gatherings. So assuming that uh, that uh, Jewish people worshipped in these synagogues out in the Roman world on the Sabbath, which would have been a Saturday, then, then there you go. We have a weekly gathering that is happening. It was every Saturday there was some worship that would go on in the synagogue. Whereas if you were in Jerusalem, that worship would go on in the temple. Uh, so, how easy it would have been for Jewish Christians to adapt that once a week uh, ritual, or, or uh, better, the better word is routine, that worship time, into a Christian worship, wherever they were. That would be very simple, because most of the early Christians were Jews. Um, uh, they, were, they were Jewish by birth and by religion. And so this becomes a problem later, right, where the Jews believe that all the Gentiles who are becoming Christians must, must obey the Jewish law first before they become Christians. That the Jewish law was part of what Jesus wanted us to obey, and this is where we have uh, the council, I believe, in Acts 11, uh, somewhere around there, where 
um, the apostles and elders and leaders in Jerusalem, they meet and they decide and they say, actually, no, uh, we, do want to, we do not want to burden the Gentiles with things like circumcision uh, and the other uh, ritualistic Jewish laws. Uh, if they would just do a few of the things, uh, for example, not to eat meat sacrificed to idols and not to drink blood uh, and to uh, abstain from sexual immorality. Uh, that's really all we would like to hold over from the law for them because because this is, you know, these rules are something that are very, uh, very much in line with who Jesus is and what he stands for. Uh, so, the gathering. Now, we don't know exactly what these gatherings look like, but we have some, we have some clues in the epistles. Uh, not so much in the Gospels. All right, a little bit in Acts. We know that, you know, some sometimes people gathered uh, in the temple, but this seems to be a daily thing. Again, this is when they were together like every day and and uh, were more of a commune, uh, in more of a commune type of living arrangement. Uh, but the gatherings we, we see in 1 Corinthians, in the latter chapters, we see a lot about the gathering. We see uh, Paul kind of rebuking them on how the church at Corinth was uh, possibly uh, off in their gathering practices. We still don't know that they only meet, met once a week. In fact, I would I would venture that they did not only meet once a week at this point, but I could be uh, but we see that uh, they were a little off in their practice of the Lord's Supper. It's going to be another podcast coming up, you know, kind of a rethinking of the Lord's Supper and possibly a, a uh, rebooting of the Lord's Supper, if you will, to use a modern, modern term. Um, so... The Lord's Supper had to be redone. They had to, to think about the way that they were operating, more in love with each other, waiting for each other, being patient with each other, uh, so that they would eat at the same time and not some people would not get drunk while others had none, right? They would share. It would be, uh, which again is very in line with Jesus. Um, also about uh, the way that they worshipped. Uh, and here, Paul seems to have the idea, he, he infers that everybody is supposed to be functioning in the worship. Every member functioning, that everybody's involved. You know, he says if, if that you know, one person has a prayer, one person has uh, uh, a song, a hymn, one person has this, one person has that. In other words, people were freely sharing something that they would like. They were contributing. Almost like a potluck meal with worship. That if you come, you are meant to 
to speak Jesus into the group in whatever way the Spirit leads you, that that's a, you know, if you don't do that, you are, you are cheating the rest of the group. That we want to know what Jesus said to you so that we can put that up with what Jesus said to us and we can see a bigger picture of what Jesus is saying to our gathering and to the body in that place. So, Paul talks about prophecy, speaking in tongues. He says that uh, especially speaking in tongues is one thing he wanted to correct and that too many people were doing that. Uh, and there, was, there seems to have been confusion. Uh, and he says, you know, maybe, maybe two or three should speak in tongues. Okay, but no more, and only if there are interpreters, right? Um, and so we see that, yes, indeed, uh, everybody was allowed to contribute. Uh, we don't necessarily see a liturgy. Now, what, what, what has happened is people have said, let there be order in worship. But this order, uh, this order does not mean liturgy. What it means is defer to one another as the Spirit leads. So, for example, if somebody is speaking and then the Spirit moves somebody else to speak, that person should stand up and speak and the person who was speaking should, should, should sit down in deference to the Spirit because the Spirit has, has interjected himself into the discussion at just the right time to make it, you know, presumably a specific point that timing is important. And so, and so we should allow people to talk. We should never uh, muzzle the members of the church. Now, does this mean male and female? Well, this is a big question, right? So, in in this in the similar. In, you know, in, in the same place in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about, uh, let the women be silent. Now, this has been taken to the nth degree, uh, and other things Paul has said, where he says, I do not allow a woman to teach a man. Uh, and so what this has done is caused women to be cut out from worship. They are, they are in many churches, in many traditions and faiths. They are allowed to sing along when everybody else sings along, but they would not be allowed to, to pray, to read scripture, to teach uh, men especially. They would be allowed to teach women. Uh, and, and this has been taken really far. Now, here's the problem, right? Not even Paul is consistent on what he says about women. And here's why I say that. Earlier, and I want to say it's in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Do not let women pray or prophesy in public unless they cover their heads. Wait a minute. So women can pray and prophesy in public, but women are to be silent in the gatherings. Alright, this is the same letter. Paul, you've written one letter 
to the same church, what do you mean? How do we take that? Okay. Now, in another place, Paul says that in the kingdom of heaven there is no male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, or free. Right? That everyone's the same. There is no male or female in the kingdom of heaven. Now, some people say the kingdom of heaven hasn't come yet. But Jesus says, if these amazing things are happening, then the kingdom of heaven is come among you. Jesus, his position seems to be that the kingdom has come. That, that that's what he's doing. He's ushering in the kingdom. And we are the church uh, until, until judgment. We are the colonization force. We are colonizing, and our churches are colonies of that kingdom of heaven, which will one day come and envelop the entire earth uh, when Jesus comes back again to make that happen. But uh, today we are colonizing, so the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven uh, was the main focus of the gospel so that we would recognize it when it comes and understand uh, what that meant by by what power we would be able to operate in that kingdom, for example. Uh, and so, women not allowed to talk in the church doesn't seem to gel with the entire body of work. Now, some people, you know, God loves these people, but they say, you know, we're be better safe than sorry. Better safe than sorry. I don't know. I I'm, I don't see Jesus being a person who ever played it safe. Uh, and love covers a multitude of sins. And Jesus said, "A new commandment I give you: love one another." So I'm pretty sure. It's more important how we love each other and care for each other than it is what kind of rules and regulations we follow and whether we follow them to the T or not. Now I'll be shot down for that. Um, and I understand. And, you know, I, I was once that way. I thought that way at one time too. I just don't anymore. And... You know, Jesus himself allowed Mary to sit at his feet to take the position of a disciple. Now, a disciple would have been expected to imitate and do all of the things that his master did, or her master did. So by allowing Mary to take the place of, of a disciple, uh, that's a pretty strong statement that the kingdom of heaven would not be a place where women were considered second-hand citizens. And doesn't that just make sense to all of us? I mean, don't we, don't, don't, doesn't that gel a lot better by who we know Jesus to be as opposed to one line that Paul says? It does to me. Uh, and here again, I'm not a textualist anymore. I don't, I don't believe that we have to uh, 
follow the letter of the Bible. I don't believe the Bible is a rule book. I don't even believe the Bible is a user's manual. The Bible is a narrative, a story. And it tells us and reveals to us who God the Father is through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the true reflection, the complete reflection of God the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen the Father, you have seen me. Or if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Rather. And so... Yeah, this is, this is what we have. Uh, we have some seemingly conflicting statements, uh, but you really need to do business with all of them and come up with a comprehensive answer to the question. And the, the question is, are women allowed to participate in equally in worship or not? That's the question. Are they allowed to equally participate in worship, in equality with men? And although I would say that our group is not there completely in practice, I would have to give assent to that belief. I know that's a big departure, and I'll, I'll probably disappoint a lot of people. Um, might be wrong. I might be wrong. It's possible. Uh, I might be wrong about a lot of stuff. But I believe that even if I'm wrong about this, uh, that Jesus' grace is enough. It's enough. It's enough to cover. Jesus' love is the love that covers a multitude of sins. All right, so back to the gathering. So what does that mean? So if the gathering was a more free-flowing, uh, every member contributing, possibly irregular meeting, at, you know, depending on where you are, we don't have any evidence that the entire church in the New Testament only met on Sundays. We don't know that. We know that some churches met on Sundays, and we know that Paul asked the churches who met on Sundays to give, and that's another thing. If we go to offering, we have no evidence that that the offering, that the collecting of money, was a thing they did every single time they meet. Paul was raising money for the Jews in Jerusalem who were going through or about to go through some tribulation, uh, some very trying times. He wanted to endear the Gentile Christians to their Jewish brothers. And so he asked the Gentiles to raise money to contribute to them, therefore creating a bond between the Jewish Jewish and the Gentile brethren. And as far as we know, this was a this was a special thing. So the offering was a special thing. He said, you know, gather gather the money on the first day of the week. Right? And when I come, that way, and when I come. I will be able to easily get it and go on to Jerusalem. He didn't want to be delayed. And so he wanted things to be done. And he knew when they were gathering. And so that's what he said. So, you know, we, we take a lot from these things and we think that uh, they are laws that now the church must gather on Sunday, that we must have an offering, that 
we must take the Lord's Supper every Sunday, Sunday or or even though that we can't take the Lord's Supper every Sunday or whatever. But all this, all this forgets one thing about the gathering that's super important. And that is the head of the gathering is supposed to be Jesus. The head of the church is Jesus. The head of the body is Jesus. He knows best how to worship himself through us. Right? When we worship, for us to worship in spirit, we need the help of the spirit. For us to worship in truth, we need the help of the Spirit, because we don't know truth. Truth must be revealed. We need supernatural help in worshiping Jesus in the best way we can, in the best way possible. When we depend on the Spirit and not on our human skills, our intelligence, our organizational skill set, when we rely on the Spirit to make a time of worship pleasing to Him, then we're allowing the head to be the head. We're allowing Jesus to be Jesus through us. Uh, so a liturgical worship can bring, bring glory to God, and I've seen it happen. I've seen God be worshipped truly in liturgical worships. The question is, do we have permission? Is there enough doubt in your mind, and I mean the good kind of doubt, to give permission to people who want to experience worshiping God in a freer way? Can you give permission to that? And that's a big deal. Because as soon as you give people to permission if, as soon as you give people permission to worship more freely, you are also including them as brethren. You're saying that, yes, you do something differently than the way I do it or the way I would do it, but hey, I believe your worship is valid. I believe that what you do is valid as well. And I am willing to accept you as brothers and admit that your worship is pleasing to God, even though it's completely different from what we do in a more traditional or institutional church. And I don't even like the word traditional in that sense because I feel like <laughs> the worship services that were happening in Corinth, by definition, should be a little bit more traditional than what we're doing today because what we are doing today is much more modern. Uh, and I'm, I'm talking in general terms. There's a lot of creativity in worship today. Uh, but still, I think until we give ourselves permission to break the adherence to a more liturgical lecture... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Spectator-like worship service then I think we we are going to kind of limit the amount of Jesus we uh, the amount of Jesus that we are experiencing but not that you can't do it in liturgical settings but I think I think we need we need to experience free worship I think free worship is faith building I think we see the spirit every time we worship freely working 
uh, and each of us see it. And their permission to say, even though I may or may not be as mature a Christian as you, you are allowing me to explore the possibility that Jesus has something to say through me, that my spiritual maturity does not make me more or less worthy to be a conduit of the voice of Jesus. And, and that's, again, that's a very equalizing thing to say, that, that the least of us is just as worthy to be a, a pipeline for the voice of God as, as the most mature. And this is this takes a lot of humility. It takes humility on the parts uh, on the part of the uh, mature, and it takes a lot of confidence on the part of the immature. And grace is what bridges the gap between it. Grace, uh, the grace of Jesus, and the grace that we uh, give each other. So, I'm going to wrap this up real quick. I'm getting close to home. Getting a little too close to home. <laughs> um, which is true, in a lot of ways. And right now, we're off to our worship. And, and wow, I, you know, as, as a, a quote-unquote leader, more in function than title in our gathering, I have to be really careful not to monopolize the time. Uh, not to force my agenda on the worship service, but to, just like everybody else, be a willing conduit uh, for the voice of God to come through. Uh, and that's something I've had to fight and have had to, 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 I've had to unlearn to plan worship and I've had to learn to, to just be another part of it an equal part, that everybody is an equal part. Uh, and this is a learning process that I'm, I'm going to be in for a while, unfortunately. I'm not quite there yet. Um, and part of the reason is uh, there's always pressure for the leaders to lead. There's always pressure uh, from, the, from people who are more comfortable following for the leaders to step up and do something. And that's, that's you know, it's not unhealthy always. That's not a, a terrible thing uh, in some circumstances, but it's also not something that has to be all the time. That as leaders, we need to create a safe space. And it may be uncomfortable. Safe does not mean comfortable. Uh, but we need to create a safe space that says, you are welcome and encouraged to speak whatever is on your heart and on your mind. Uh, and we promise that we will listen um, and that we will not uh, judge you or throw you out because of what you say uh, that we believe in the principle um, that God has created us all equal and that every person from the youngest to the oldest to the, you know, from the 
least qualified, quote unquote, to the most, quote unquote, qualified, are all equal in the, in the eyes of God. And that's something that we're going to live by. And if it's uncomfortable, it's uncomfortable. You know, we're going to do our best to make sure that you are encouraged to give us a message from Jesus. Uh, I know that's not a comprehensive idea on the gathering, but that kind of gives you an idea of where uh, where we are, where we come from, uh, and some of my ideas on it. Hopefully I'll talk about the kingdom soon, and actually as I was talking about this, I, I came up with other topics that will be soon to come. I don't know what order, but I'll just say uh, communion or the Lord's Supper will be one. The offering, uh, giving will be another. And the kingdom of God will be one coming soon, I hope. Uh, God bless you guys, and thank you again for listening. And you guys have a great night. Goodbye.